0: Well, we want to continue our study in signs of the times. We have moved from the signs of Israel to the signs of the nations. We did an introduction really last week as we looked um, at Daniel chapter 2 in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and uh, his uh, representation that God gave him of the uh, entirety of really the times of the nations, until the fall of all nations. And of course, it's the end that we're interested in at this point. We want to certainly study the previous ones to train ourselves in the interpretation process. But we're really looking at that end when the stone that's hewn out of the rock, not made with hands, that 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 that, uh, destruction of the nations, that conclusion of the times of the nations, of the times of the Gentiles, is what we are looking at. Um, And so we're going to build to that. In order for it to come, it would require that the nation be here, that we are down to uh, the end and we are down well towards the end. Uh, We are going to see, of course, that God paints the pictures of the nations in very broad strokes. He doesn't give us uh, enormous detail in this instance of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, uh, but we are given an outline And that outline leads us, uh, through the empires of, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, which is Babylon, uh, the Medes and the Persians. Uh, we're gonna have extensive information really given us on the Greek Empire in Daniel. And then, of course, into the Roman Empire. And really, to its conclusion, the Roman Empire is going to be that weakened and weakened and deteriorating empire. To the point that really we only see fragments of it represented, particularly in 10 other nations. Um, and then we're going to see an 11th nation that we ought to be concerned about. And that's going to be introduced to us tonight in Daniel chapter 7, is where we're going to proceed tonight. Uh, we're going to jump from chapter 2 uh, over to chapter, did I say 7? Yes, chapter 7. And uh, the entirety of chapter 7. Before we go into that, let's, um, oh, by the way, before I pray. Um, the question was asked, uh, why these nations? Uh, there were certainly other empires that exceeded these in duration or exceeded these in, in land territory. Um, there were other empires that uh, spread across the land that had great influence and, and certainly that uh, you might say, well, why weren't they recognized here in this times of the Gentiles? Um, and that is because prophecy has one interest uh, one focal point when it comes to nationality, and that focal point is Israel. And so uh, what all of these empires will have uh, in agreement with another in common is that each one of them will have reign and rule over Israel. And so uh, certainly Attila the Hun had the largest empire in terms of land mass that he conquered in his... In, the, uh, uh, in his empire. Uh, certainly some of the Chinese, and that was not a Mongolia, but certainly some of the Chinese dynasties were very extensive and, and well-known. And so there were other empires around, but none of them penetrated into the land of Israel. And so we're looking for biblical prophecies fulfillment. We need to focus in there, and that's going to help us later on. And so why do we know that these are what they say? Well, first of all, in the interpretive scheme, God tells us that it's the Medes and Persians. God tells point blank, it is Greece. Uh, When it comes to Rome, we are given really a very, uh, we're never given a specific statement that out of Rome or anything like that. We're given a description and I believe that it is purposefully vague in terms of where exactly you're going to look for for that fourth empire because that empire um, is going to, go on for well over 2,000 years. Now we can look back and say um, in its fragmented form. But we still have to go back and say, okay, who is it that comes after Greece that is going to rule over Israel, particularly that's going to bring uh, about the, um, uh, the, the uh, opposition against, first of all, the Messiah in His first coming, who will be responsible or partly responsible for that act of uh, the the crucifixion, and then uh, pressing forward now, we drive all of the other prophetic nations, not two, well a couple of empires, but nations, out of that people. so it doesn 't say that um, uh, a Roman emperor is going to be destroyed by Christ at the end, rather it says. Uh, the people that do that, that destroy Jerusalem, out of them will come a future prince that will be the one who makes this peace treaty. And because of that, many people are looking for an Italian uh, person to be the man of sin because of that prophetic statement that we're going to study in Daniel. Um, and uh, Or someone of Italian extract. Well, um, if you want to know what my extract is, what my or my children even worse, um, here's what we are. We are here's what my kids are. They're Russian, English, German, French, Dutch, and something we don't know. Because my grandma wasn't a nice lady, and so um, we're not sure who Grandpa was. But um, so we look back over that and we say, well. I mean, you can, and we look at the American uh, melting pot and it really makes a blur of all that. Um, but that's where they derive that idea. And so we're going to uh, try to m- identify Rome and, and and understand that really all empires since then have really been built on that model of uh, that Roman uh, that are interest in way to Israel, that have been built on that Roman iron that has been fragmented and is found in many nation- nations uh, that has deteriorated. And so we're looking to Israel, who has been uh, or has had authority over Israel. And it's not just the European, but also the Eastern countries like Turkey that were part of the Roman Empire that have had uh, extensive times of being in authority over Israel. That... Piece of real little bitty little bitty piece of real estate right there uh, along the Mediterranean. So let's go Lord in prayer as we get into this now and really uh, see more specific information as we drive ourselves down this corridor of history into the end times. Let's pray, Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the opportunity to look in your Word, and again as always, we do pray for your Holy Spirit to guide and direct. We do pray that uh, that as we look in your Word, your Spirit might move in us, that we might see its truth, that we might uh, have wisdom that uh, comes from above, uh, and that it uh, moves us to obedience, that it moves us to understanding the necessity of urgency in our own Christian development and walk, in a sense of urgency, you know, being your commands to make disciples of all nations. And Lord, we know that the times of nations will one day end. And one day soon. And Lord, we look forward as we even as we live in this world and are prepared to take that stand that you've called us to do, Lord, our our vision is cast to that one to come. And we look forward to it with great anticipation. Till that day we pray that we might truly stand as citizens of your realm first and foremost. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, we come to Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel has an, a vision of his own. The last one was Nebuchadnezzar's vision. Daniel's given that information and translates or interprets it for Nebuchadnezzar. We now come to Daniel having his own vision. It ha- happens not while Nebuchadnezzar is even alive. It says in verse 1, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon... And this is kind of interesting because this chapter 7 happens after the historical or before the historical event of chapter 6. Chapter 6, we are dealing with Darius. Um, chapter 5 was the fall of Belshazzar. Okay, and so um, chapter 7 has been lifted out of the chronology, which is very common in prophecy in Israel, and has been placed here uh, well after the fact. Many people think, well, maybe Daniel was so disturbed by it, he didn't say anything, And it wasn't until this period of relative rest under Darius after the lion's den event that he um, uh, revealed this because it does make intimate that Daniel had this dream back then uh, and that it was later that it was written down uh, as he told the facts. And so he was speaking and some contend that he was actually speaking to uh, Darius's court telling him what his dream was before Um, However the context is, we're not that concerned about it right now. We really want to look at what is it that he saw. And much like Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we're going to have a presentation of the nations. Uh, Verses 3, 4, 5, and 6 give us these four nations in summary. And the first three are not of great concern to Daniel. It's the fourth one that's going to get his attention because it is drawn out. And I'll show you the word that tells me that. So the first one in verse 3. I'm sorry, verse four. The first one uh, is Babylon, like a lion, had wings, uh, eagle's wings. washed till its wings were plucked off. It was lifted from the earth and made to stand two feet like a man. And a man's heart was given to him. I say, how do you know? Um, and we can know. All right, those are all references to what happened to Nebuchadnezzar when he was became an animal in the field. Uh, he again submitted himself to Jesus Christ or to God and made God really his king, and submitted his kingdom to the worship of the Lord Jehovah. And uh, that's, I believe, the reference to the idea of rising up in two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to him. And in the prophetic vision of Daniel, that reference to having a man's anything is referring to, what are you using to serve God with? Nebuchadnezzar subordinated his whole country, his whole empire, his heart to God. So it was a man's heart rather than a beast's heart. Um, right after him, suddenly, it says in verse 5, that tells you something. Suddenly means that it's going to be a very abrupt change from Babylon to Persia, which is exactly what happened. That's been recorded for us in Daniel chapter 5. Um, and this next one comes up, a beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. Uh, kind of interesting terms. So that's why we know it's the Medes and the Persians, with the Persians having the greater dominance and had three ribs in its mouth re- between its teeth, representing the three uh, other empires it devoured. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour, devour much flesh. And so it was a conquering realm. Verse 6, and by the way, the Persians were that. Um, they were, and, and they were really, when we think about how they were stopped uh, in Macedon, Macedonia, um, it was incredible that they stopped there, but uh, their feat of getting there was... was uh, amazing in itself. It says, after this, so now we have a little bit more of a, of a period of time in its trade, in its transition. Another beast like a leopard, known for its speed. All right? So you have a lion with its nobility. You have a, a bear with its ferocity or strength. Uh, you have a leopard with its speed. And it's on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, referring to the four generals of uh, Alexander the Great. And dominion was given to it. And then there was a fourth beast. That's Greece. Fourth beast in verse 7. Uh, in the night vision, behold, the fourth beast, dreadful, terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, per- per- breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. And so that's really the conclusion of our description of these four. And of course, we recognize this as not just the Roman Empire, but the Roman Empire and extending. And then there's a word in verse 8 that tells us about the idea that this is something that's going to be going on for a long period of time. The other empires rose and fell. Babylon pretty suddenly came to its end. Media Persia had its duration. Greece had its duration for some time. Rome, as an entity of itself, has uh, a fairly long duration. Um, but its influence and its residue is really still with us to this day. And the biblical statement is, it will be with us till Christ comes. The residue. Weakened certainly, uh, uh, even to the point of being fractured, but um, it's there. So we have these four verses with four uh, empires described. And in verse 8, it says, I was considering the horns. So he's sitting there studying on them. Uh, And this is a word that talks about a time period, that he's looking at these horns. Uh, Remember, before they were toes. And later on, we're going to see 10 horns uh, as well. And so whether it's horns or toes, we're looking at these 10 that have been uh, part of this empire uh, and represent the majority of it. And so we find that he's looking at these ten and it's this idea of a passage of time that he's considering them. He's exam- He's getting a good look at them. He wants to really study them out and he's, con- he's just spending some time on the ten horns. And over the period of this time something happens. And in verse 8 we have that description. As I was considering these horns, the ten, there was another horn. A little one it says. Uh, coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words okay now remember what does where reference to man what are we talking about its relationship to god and so Nebuchadnezzar had the heart of a man that is one who has humbled himself and put himself in the right relationship with god this Creature, this horn had the eyes like the eyes of a man. That is, it looked like it. It gave the appearance of being right with God. It looked the part. But in fact, out of its mouth we find what is really going on, and out of its mouth comes braggarts, pompous words against God, uh, pompous words lifting up themselves uh, as a nation, as an entity. And so we're looking for not among the 10. The 10 is the biggest picture, okay? the the mega. And we're not looking at the micro, we're looking at the macro. And so in the macro of Nebuchadnezzar, there was just 10. Well, now we're going to get a little bit farther down the line. And so there's a passage of time. Daniel's considering these 10 nations. So that's some time period going on. And now after a period of time will come an 11th one, a new one. And little doesn't mean small. How do you know, Pastor, little doesn't mean small? Little means small. No, in this sense, little meant young. Why do I know that little doesn't mean small? Because I've read the rest of the chapter and I know the interpretation is going to be given to Daniel. And so Daniel sees this new horn rise out of the ten. Very dramatic, okay? Because we didn't see an eleventh one back there in Nebuchadnezzar's. But there's this new one that rises up and it's going to captivate his attention and we're going to be given a lot of information about it in the uh, interpretation given to Daniel. And so, uh, why is it so important to us? Because it is while this little horn, this 11th one comes into being that God sets up his throne. And so, verse 11, uh, we have some poetic information here about uh the Ancient of Days, about what he's doing and and the heavens being opened, the court and the end scenario being set up by God. Uh, Verse 11 says, I watched them because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. And as for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season at a time. And, And of course, the Ancient One coming in the clouds of heaven, he came in the Ancient of Days. And so here comes Christ. He is going to bring an end to that eleventh horn nation or empire, and so that interests us because that means Christ's coming at this eleventh at the end of this eleventh horns uh, reign. um, No other nation is going to supplant it. No other nation is going to destroy it. It will be destroyed by the Ancient of Days, by Jesus Himself, and so we are looking. To the end. And that's what get, brings us to this exciting time of saying, well, is this a sign of times? How can we tell when this 11th horn has come? Well, Daniel doesn't understand it. In verse 15, he was grieved in his spirit and in his body. Uh, the visions of his head troubled him. Uh, and so God sends someone, Gabriel, to give him the interpretation. Isn't that excellent? And so there was nothing prior to this that had this kind of symbols. Uh, that God had given to any other prophet, and so uh, God sends Gabriel down to interpret that for him. And, uh, and it's going to, how do you know it's Gabriel? Well, we assume that. It might not have been, actually. Uh, Gabriel is going to show up in chapter 8. We assume the same one here. So, asking well, the truth of all this, he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. And so here we go. Verse 17 is an interpretation of what he just saw. Those great beasts, which are four, or four kings which rise out of the earth. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. That's the mega macro, okay? (laughs) Here's the biggest picture. The biggest picture is there's a time of the nations. It's going to come to an end. And then there'll be a kingdom that lasts forever and it's going to belong to the saints of God. Okay? That's the biggest, simplest story there is. That's, in a nutshell, what you just saw. The great beasts, which are four, four kings, rise out of the Saints are going to overcome them, or the, the saints of the Most High, who is going to come and destroy them, are going to receive a kingdom at the end of that. So, that's all he gets an in interpretation. In verse 19, then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast. So, all the interpretation Daniel's given, because it doesn't concern him fundamentally in his lifespan, it is well off. So, all the interpretation given to him, before he asks more specifics, is, the nations are going to have an end. When the nations have an end, the eternal kingdom of God will come for the saints. So Daniel says, well, okay, um, but I want a little more information. And he's asking about one thing. I want to know the truth about the fourth beast, which is different than all the others, exceedingly dreadful, his teeth of iron, and nails of bronze. He goes on and describes it and, uh, and recounts his vision. He says, I want to know about the, uh, and the ten horns on the head, the other horn which came up, verse 20, before which three fell, namely that horn that which had eyes and a mouth, which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. And uh, that's how I know that the little horn wasn't small, it was young. Is because, Daniel says, when I saw it, it was greater than the other ones. We're looking for a national entity that in terms of stature, size, strength, is actually greater than those that that it was born out of. And we're looking for one that came into being out of three of those that were once comprising part of the Roman Empire. And so that's what we're looking for. And he asks, I want to know about this. And so um, the one that the Ancient of Days is going to destroy, I want to know about that one. So verse 23, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, that's the macro, which shall be different from other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall rise from this kingdom and another king shall rise after them. And so the chronology is you're going to have the entrance of the Roman Empire, it's going to conquer first. Then it will be. We'll see a. a, It'll degrade into these ten lesser nations, and then over a period of time, you'll see one great nation come up from among those ten. Not one of those ten, another, an eleventh. So we're not looking for one of those ten to have authority over the other seven, or even to have authority over three of those others. Rather, we're looking for a totally separate one that will supplant, and that's literally the term used by Daniel, to supplant, to take over the territory, the ground of three of those. And that word is real important, it, that uh, it's a gardening term. okay? And this is, I think, very important in Daniel. Whenever he gets away from violent terms it should tell us something. There's only two or three times that he does it and every time it's referenced to this last entity. He doesn't do it the way the others did it. The others did it violently. This one is going to uh, uh, not destroy those other nations. He is simply going to be planted in their place. They're, they're still going to exist. They're still going to be uh, entities. But part of where their root structure is, it's going to take some of that ground and make it its own. And so we're looking for a new nation that's very great. It says it was greater than its fellows, greater than the ones that it's, that it's preceded by. Uh, we're looking for a great one who is going to take its place from out of three others who once were part of the Roman Empire. And so this is the description of it in verse 24. Um... There's more description, but let's just look at this coming into being description. And for most of you, you know my position that I believe the United States fits this and only the United States fits this description. Uh, We're talking about a nation that is young, and we are very young as a nation, uh, who took its territory really from three of the European nations who had come into here, uh, from the British, from the French, and from the Spaniards, Okay, clearly, within the context of the Roman Empire's, old Roman Empire, among those ten uh, nations deriv- derived from there. Uh, we want to go back and say, well, does that f- description fit uh, the rule of thumb that we had that it should have something to do with Israel? That at some point, this nation is going to have some influence or power uh, with regard to Israel, uh, or at least the territory of Israel. And we'll discuss that a little bit, but fundamentally it does, uh, as well as the predecessor, particularly of Great Britain. And so you find that that word subdue is literally transplant out. It's that gardening term that we're going to, here's a tree, and we're going to cut back some of its roots in one area to plant another one. So the tree is still there, but we have diminished its root structure to make room for a new tree, and it's done that to three trees around it. And that's what's born this new nation that is a great nation, but a very young nation. That's what we are to look for at the end times. When you see a new nation born that takes its territory out of three old Roman nations, and it becomes a great nation, and it looks like a god Like nation. It has the appearance of being godly, but it speaks pompous words. That nation is the last one. That's the one you're looking for. You're looking for that kind of a place. And when that arises, then you know that you are at the very end of the age of nations, of the times of the Gentiles. And so we have this description of it how it came into being we then have the description verse 25 of what will it be like in its living Uh, what will that nation be like and it has several descriptions we already had the pompous words against the most high number one number two persecute the saints of the most high another very interesting word number three intend to change times and laws is the third description. And that really describes most of it. Then there's a chronology word called then. So late, late, late in its development, right before the Lord comes, something's going to happen. It says the saints will be given into His hand for a specific period of time, for three and a half years. Okay? So, we are looking at a period of time, or a nation that has these qualities about it. It speaks pompous words against God. It persecutes the saints of the Most High, which is a terrible translation of the Hebrew there. And then thirdly, it will intend to change times and law. And so I'm looking for one that speaks pompous words. I'm looking for a nation that is arrogant in its words. Well, how do nations talk? How do nations talk? Anybody have any ideas? I, no, that's not that's how their leaders, their kings talk that way, but how do nations talk? Think about it. How does our nation I mean we still have certain declarations that we still care about today? What do we call those? Huh? Treaties? What? At the beginning, huh? Constitutions? Your founding document is a declaration of independence. Declaration is what? Speech. You're saying something. So we even have it right there in the title of the document, Declaration of Independence. And what do we declare? We declare that these truths are self-evident, that all men were created equal and were endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is what the words of a nation is in their documents, their declarations. And so here are their words. And you might say, well, that sounds like those are really good words, aren't they? Are they? Now, when we were studying um, bibliology, what did we learn about self-evident information? What is that called? That's called human intuition, self-evidence Was the basis of that declaration. It was not, we hold these truths from God's word. We hold these truths from human intuition. We hold these words self evident. We have figured out this truth. They did not derive that from the Bible because it's not in the Bible. Has God truly created all men equal? He's created us in His image. But you will not find that terminology or that description in Scripture. In Christ, there is no difference, right? Jew and Gentile, male, female. In Christ, there is no difference. But does that mean what the Founding Fathers meant in terms of what they view equality and particularly how it's being used today? um, That... God has given us certain inalienable rights. Inalienable means that they cannot be separated from your existence as a human being, and is that a truism from Scripture? Do you have a right that you can stand before God and claim to life, liberty, and happiness, or at least the pursuit of it? Is that your right? Do you have that right fundamentally, not given to you by your country, according to that declaration, that God has given to you? Is that biblical? Is that a biblical statement? Has God given you the right to live that you can claim before Him? You cannot bring death to me. I have a right to life. No. The Bible says you have a right to something else. What is it? Death. You have a right to be dead because of your sins. That's what you've earned. That's your wages. And so here our founding fathers put forth this declaration, their words, and what pompous words they are. And even today, in the Christian community, the church lifts that statement up and says, this is a wonderful, godly statement, and it's horrific. Do you have a right to liberty that you can stand before your Creator and say, I demand this right to be free? No. You're a slave to sin. Do you have the right to the pursuit of happiness? No. You see, all these things they said God gave us, God never gave us. We cannot earn them. They are only found when we surrender ourselves to Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean that all the founding fathers were evil men intent on this deception? No. Um, But we did have a few founding fathers that water down most of our historical documents to make sure that they were very generic in terms of their references to God even though some of our founding fathers statements were we have to be a christian nation we have to follow jesus christ and they were godly godly men but the documents of our country are extraordinarily pompous and have very little to do with the truth of god's word including your constitution And so we fit that. And that's the pompous words of a nation. Well, how do we get to the idea of persecuting the saints? Certainly not this country is persecuting saints. Well, I have a little number one in my Bible, which means that uh, there's an alternative translation of that word, persecute. And number one in my margin says wear out. And that is literally what it means. It is a word referring to your clothing, wear out, wear thin. It is not a violent statement. Do you think Daniel was able to use violent words when they were necessary? I mean, did you read? Trampled, bitten, devoured. I mean, he knows violent words. This is a very non violent word. This is a word that says wear out. You're looking for a nation that isn't going to attack God's people, at least not till the very last three and a half years. He's not going to have permission to attack them. He's got a whole different tactic than any other opposition to uh, Christianity or to the God's people. And his opposition is not blatant. It's not out there. This nation's opposition is subtle. And it's gradual. And you can't even notice it all the time. When do you notice that your clothes have worn out? Do you notice it after you washed them the first time? You washed your brand new clothes, you wore them once, and you washed them, and you pick up and oh man, they're wearing out already. Do you say that after your first washing? Do you say it after your tenth washing? Do you say it after the first six months? Not unless you've got some really cheap clothes from Walmart, but um, generally, it's just a very, very, very gradual process. Gradu- and this is the term used here, that this nation is going to wear out The people of God. They're just going to gradually wear them down and deteriorate them and take it off layer by layer, very, very, on a molecular level almost, if you want to use the garment idea, that it's going to be almost unnoticeable until suddenly you wake up and you hold that thing up and say, I can see through this. Well, guess what? Right now in Christianity, I look around at what's going on in churches today and I can see through it. And what's going on there is not godly. It's not biblical. It's not truth. That's, and so we have been worn out in righteousness. We have been worn out out of uh, understanding God's Word and this whole idea of not a frontal attack on Christianity but this gradual wearing. That's what you're looking for. A nation that will gradually deteriorate the people of God uh, kind of like the frog in the pot that the temperature around it's increasing and doesn't even know how dangerous a situation it's in and it literally just boils itself to death because it won't jump out because it doesn't know it's under attack. And that's the condition under this nation. In this nation, they're just wore out. They deteriorate and deteriorate and deteriorate and they think they're fine and in fact, they're being worn down. The third description of this last nation on earth here in verse 25 is that it will tend to change times and law. And there's been lots of ideas about what Daniel means by this, um, which I don't think we need to uh, investigate very much because this exact same description is given by us somewhere else in Daniel. Are you surprised? Um, we are given that description. I didn't write it down. I should have written it down. Let me see if I can find it. It's just a. It's um, no, it's actually backwards. Uh, we have to go back. Uh, times and laws. Thank you. That sounds about right. No, that's a, it's the same. He changes times and seasons. Um, That's also a statement regarding God. Do you see that? This description in chapter 2, verse 21, is the same kind of idea. He changes the times and the seasons uh, and removes kings and raises up, sets wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding, reveals the deep and secret things. He knows what is in darkness, light dwells with him. Who is this referring to? This is the God. God is the one who does all these things. In wisdom you have made and might now you've made known to me what you have made known to us the king's demands. So we have God presented, and essentially what happens is they intend to totally take over that role of God. And when we're looking at this, it's not just the seasons, oh we're going to change the seasons, uh, but rather the times and the seasons, the the, the rising of kings and kingdoms, wisdom, understanding. And I think verse 22 is really important, the deep and secret things. That this is the wisdom and power of God. And this nation is going to tend to change all of that. And while many people go to, and they, they do interesting things like who instituted daylight savings time, we're trying to change the times and things like that. Um, God's Word is a lot bigger than that. And it's more concerned with more dramatic things. Remember, um, we're trying to look for the elephant in the room. We're not trying to look for, you know, a toenail. We're looking for an elephant. It's something big. We're looking for the macro. And when you examine historically, what is it that deals and delves into the deep secrets of God about the origins of things, of the seasons, of times, um, where do they all come from? Where does the sun, moon, the stars, day, night, all those things derive from? um, Even the seasons, where do they come from? Well, they come from the account of Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, going into the flood. That's where all those things derive from. And this one is going to change all of that. We're not going to follow those creation information, the times and laws set up by them. We're going to try to change it. And the deep and secret things in the knowledge of God, we are going to try to pervert and take over for ourselves that that is ours. And we're going to redefine it. We're going to change it. And now, and by the way, you understand this is a modern uh, movement of a foot that is largely driven by the Great Britain and the United States um, to the point that today in today's newspaper a senator was uh, talked about as if he was a fool because he believed the earth is only 9,000 years old. Did you see that little article? Did you get the impression they were trying to say, what is he doing being in in an office if he believes this stuff? And he's actually on the subcommittee of science and technology. What's he doing there? He doesn't believe in evolution. What's he doing there? And I believe this is a reference to a huge movement that denies creation, denies the truth of what true knowledge, which the word knowledge is science. The deep secret things, they are trying to unfold denying God all the time. They are trying to change times and laws. And here's the laws of God that He has implemented in the universe in His creative act and the the seasons and all of that all Denying the flood, denying the, the creation of God, and seeking to unearth and to meddle with the secret things of the universe, all the while seeking to change where they came from and what they mean. And so every scientific discovery, what do they say it proves? Do you ever hear in the newspaper, this proves that God exists? This proves the creation. This proves the young earth. This proves... Do you ever hear them say that anywhere in the newspaper or television? Every scientific discovery, what do they claim? This supports evolution. You see, they intend to truly change science, knowledge, the laws of God in nature by claiming that God has nothing to do with it. And so then and that's a macro thing. That's not a micro thing. I'm not I'm not this is something that is attributed to God. They intend to change it, and they're going to take God out of that equation. That's the change they want to implement. It's not that they're going to make the seasons reversed or something like that. It's there's some really weird ideas out there. It is the change is that they're going to take something that only God was involved in and they're going to extract Him from it, and they're going to make it something that we control. How many of you believe that we control the climate? By how much you drive your car around. How many many believe that we can control the climate? But the world thinks that it's our fault. We've done that. We control it. Now, do we have pollution and climate issues? Probably, yes, certainly. But who is controlling fundamentally the laws of nature around us? Well, they didn't happen randomly. That's what they want you to believe because they are wanting to change them. And so we look to a nation. Pompous words. We're looking for a nation that is trying to... It will not attack the saints, just wear them out. And we're looking for a nation that wants to change things that God established and take God right out of it. That's the nation. The rest of the description here talks about what he's going to do at the very end and how he's going to be destroyed. But in terms of identifying this 11th toe, this 11th horn, this new nation that's going to become greater than its predecessors is going to be built out of three of their space. Three of them had the space and they are going to take that. And we're going to see some other descriptions next week. Um, This is what we're looking for. But... Pompous words, looks like a godly nation, has the appearance of it, the eyes of man, speaks pompous words against God, wears out the saints of God, and intend to change the things that only God has authority over. This is the nation you're to be watching out for. And it's this that is the nation that God will destroy. And it's kind of interesting because at the end of the statement, all the other nations are going to continue to exist. But that nation will be eliminated by God entirely. It will not be around at the end of the millennial kingdom. It will not be around during the millennial kingdom like the other nations that are described. It will be completely and utterly destroyed. And that will happen at Armageddon. But that nation, all the other nations will be impacted, certainly at Armageddon, but that one nation, this last one, it says that God is going to completely destroy him forever. And so they're not going to be around during the Millennial Kingdom. They will not be among those nations raised up by Satan um, and during Gog and Magog's uh, Re- um, rebellion coming against Israel because there won't be that last nation. It it will be destroyed by God Himself. And so we're drawing nearer and nearer and if we're in the last days, that nation should be plainly evident. It should fulfill every single description here right up until the statement of what it does the last three and a half years of its existence and I don't expect that I will be alive the last three and a half years of its existence on earth. I'll be alive in heaven, but not on earth the last three and a half years when it assaults violently the people of God. And I ref- believe that refers to the 144,000 and such. So that's what we're looking for, dri- driven out of here. And this is what fascinates Damn, does Daniel understand any of this? Not really. It, he's still very troubled at the end of this. And even at the end of the book, he's like, I still don't get it. Well, that's because he was told it's not for you to get. It's only for one group of people to get. And it's the people who are going to be there at the end. Not the people, all the people who are going to live in that nation, just the people who are going to be there at the very end. They will be able to recognize that nation if they are wise in the handling of God's Word and looking around and recognizing what does the Bible say to look for. So I believe we are at that juncture where we are able to recognize it easily if we are willing to really uh, take a look at uh, and not be so myopic and so unable to look at what's right in front of us. Uh, the elephant's in the room and very few people are pointing at it. Let's go, to Lord, in prayer. Or we'll finish up tonight.